Well, one thing I love about sports is I love the moment when practice is over and it's time to perform. Game time or the moment of competition has come. And the reason, one of the reasons at least, that I like it so much is because there's always a noticeable change that occurs in the athletes that are about to perform. You could see it in every level. You can see it in professional athletes. Even after decades of playing their sport, the intensity that arises when the moment of competition comes, it's just off the charts. You could see it in uh, teenagers or in high school athletics. I remember thinking when I played basketball at Pacific Grove High School that we were so amazing because we would come out to play our basketball games in our home gym to Iron Man by Black Sabbath. And I remember we thought like, we are just gonna win the game off sheer intimidation. Like this song, we just got so jacked and so intense. And you can even see it in the littlest of athletes. I remember being a softball coach for four and five and six-year-old little girls, many of them who were playing the sport for the very first time. And we would practice for about a month. I would teach them where home plate was, where first base was, second base, third base. I would teach them a little bit about how to throw. I would try to teach them how to catch. I would teach them how to defend themselves and not let the ball hit their face. I would teach them when to swing. And we had a great time for about a month and then the inevitable first game would come. And these little girls, by intuition, knew something is different. They'd show up for game day, and they could tell that their parents were acting different. They could tell that Coach Nate was acting different. They could tell because there was another team there, and everybody was all dressed up, and there were bleachers and fans and people cheering and shouting their name, and you could see the intensity that came on each one of their face. The pressure of performance came into their lives. The reason I'm saying this is because at this point in Peter's letter, the letter is going to take a definite turn. Up to this point, Peter has hinted that times of trouble for being a Christian could come. But Peter is finished now in this port, at this point of the letter talking to us about the practice of the Christian life. Now for Peter, it's game time. And our passage is a sober passage. I hope you notice that as we read through it. It talks a lot about Christian suffering. And he's going to now enter into one of the hardest portions of this letter. Not just today, but in the weeks to come. Difficult to understand in part, but also difficult because of its sober nature. There's really not a lot that's, that's happy about it because it's a moment where we must endure suffering. Peter knew that many of the believers that he wrote to were beginning to suffer for their faith, beginning to be marginalized for their faith, but that many more would suffer in the years after his letter arrived. I don't know how much Peter knew. I don't know how much the Spirit showed him. But after this letter was delivered, Rome unleashed one of the bloodiest and most terrible waves of persecution upon the church. So there could have been people that were there in the church that Peter wrote to, listening to Peter's words. Maybe even some of them thinking to themselves, Peter, you're being a little intense. Yeah, we've gotten some insults. Yeah, we've gotten some threats. But it's not that bad at this point but they didn't know 
what the Spirit was preparing them for in the age to come. And after Peter wrote this letter, millions, if not billions of believers have been marginalized and some of them even persecuted for the gospel. Family members, employers, governments, cultures, and civilizations have all taken turns aiming their hostility at waves of Christians. And I'm not here to make a prediction about what's going to come in our lives. I'm not here to say that this is going to happen to you or that this is going to happen to me or that this is going to happen to us. But personally, I don't see Christianity becoming more popular in our society in the age to come. And I want to be clear about what I mean by this. I do see true Christianity growing in the coming decades, even in our society, partly because hostility against the church purifies the church. And when the church becomes pure, the church becomes more beautiful, and our witness and testimony becomes more attractive. So I expect that more people will come to Christ in the age and in the season to come. I'm hoping for that. I'm praying for that. But what I don't think will happen is that Christianity will become widely accepted by the culture at large. I think the trend that we're seeing of the Bible and Christianity and even Christians being seen as a cancer in our society with beliefs that are harmful to society, I think that view is only going to increase in the age to come. So perhaps we should allow Peter's words today and over the next few studies to resonate with our hearts, to prepare us for whatever might be around the bend. So the first thing I want you to see from this passage, and it might sound counterintuitive, is that exile suffering, that's what I'm calling it today, it highlights God's blessing upon our lives. That's the first thing I want to show you today, that it highlights God's blessing upon our lives. And for this, Let's look again at the first two verses of our passage. If you put your nose back in your Bible again, look at verse 13 and 14. He asked a question. He said, now who is there who to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now let me explain to you what Peter is saying with this question and then this statement. First of all, for the question, I'll remind you that last week we saw Peter quoting from Psalm 34. And in Psalm 34, one of the things that Peter discovered was that for believers who live a good life, for believers who refrain from speaking evil, for believers who refrain from uh, being deceptive, people like that, according to Psalm 34, can expect to live a fairly good life they'll be seen as a blessing to the societies that they live in. And so what Peter is asking, based off Psalm 34, is this hypothetical question. He's saying, if you live like that, if you are serving your community, if you are volunteering, if you are praying for, if you are loving, if you are blessing your community, then who would want to harm you if you're living that kind of life. Who would want to harm you, he says, in verse 13, if you are zealous for good works? This is a hopeful question, in other words. A question where Peter believes that there will be plenty of instances where believers learn to live at peace with their host 
cultures. But as much as Peter thought that this could happen and even would happen, he also knew that hostility would happen and was happening toward the church. You know, in the last few weeks, we've seen Peter tell us how to treat governments and how servants should treat masters and how wives should treat husbands. And many governments and masters and spouses in that era, and even in ours, would appreciate the humble submission and godly character of Christians they associated with. But many others Peter knew would not. And Peter was aware of this. He knew this. He'd heard Jesus' words where Jesus promised that an age or season of persecution would come. Peter had watched the life of a man like Paul. He'd seen others who were intensely uh, pained for the sake of the gospel. Even Peter himself had been thrown into prison and beaten for his faith. He'd even witnessed the fulfillment of Jesus' promise because Jesus had said to his disciples that the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And Peter had witnessed some of his friends die at the hands of religious zealots who thought they were serving God by killing Peter's friends. So as much as Peter wanted host cultures to treat believers well because believers are a blessing to the host culture, Peter knew that hostility would still often occur. So he gave instruction in verse 14. He said, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He promised that even despite the suffering, despite the threats, even if they were victims of slander, Peter says, you will be blessed. Now this echoes the words of Jesus. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He went on to explain the reason for the blessing is at least in part because it puts you in the camp of the prophets who in a previous era were rejected by their generation, but they were approved and favored and loved and honored by God. But I think to us, it almost sounds strange to hear Peter and also think of Jesus' words where there's promises of blessing that are attached to suffering. It just sounds odd to us. These aren't words that we normally put in the same sentence, the word suffering along with the word blessing. How can the apostle claim that suffering for Jesus means that we will be blessed? Now, there are some places in the Bible and some places even in 1 Peter where the teaching is that when you suffer for the faith, God will produce a blessing out of that pain, out of that suffering, that he'll use all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But I don't think that's what Peter is saying here. Peter is not saying that suffering for Jesus will produce blessing. What he's saying here is that suffering for Jesus indicates that you are already a person that is blessed. When, when I was a little boy and I first started going to elementary school, you know, we'd have these moments where it was time to do crafts. And uh, they'd come by with a bin filled with scissors, and everybody would pull out their own little set of 
scissors, you know, that were pretty dull. You couldn't really do very much damage with them and all that, but they were all made for right-handed people, and I'm a left-handed person. So as a little lefty, you know, five or six-year-old, I would get my scissors out, and I would start to try to cut with my left hand, and and it just would butcher the paper. I mean, it looked like I'm ripping it with my hands, and it was over time that I figured out, oh, I have to actually cut with my right hand rather than with my left hand. It was real suffering. You guys should feel very sorry for me at this point in my life. But if you'd looked at my craft projects in those early days, you would have seen evidences. As you saw the paper that was shredded and torn and all of that, you could have concluded, oh, this person is left-handed and they're trying to cut with these right-handed scissors. It was an indication or evidence of who I was or who I am. Peter is saying here that it's not so much that marginalization for the faith leads to blessing, though it can, but that marginalization for the faith demonstrates that you are the kind of person who is already spiritually blessed because you have a real relationship with God, because you have the truth, Because you have the gospel, you are blessed. It's just that you might also be marginalized or hated for the gospel's sake. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the key ways that God blessed the people of Israel under that covenant is that when they were obedient to God, he would bless them with health and with wealth, health and prosperity. We're not under that covenant today. We're under a new covenant And even some of our major heroes of the faith experienced the opposite of health and wealth. That is suspended for us today. One day we'll go to heaven and we will receive ultimate health and wealth in Christ's kingdom. But what the Bible teaches for the new covenant, New Testament, this side of the cross believer is that what we possess is of much more value than any physical health or wealth here on earth. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that we as Christians have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And when you suffer for the faith or even marginally are criticized or ridiculed because of your Christian convictions and belief, what you need to do is allow it to be an evidence of who you are, that you're the possessor of God himself, that you own every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is probably a bad analogy. It probably breaks down on many different levels. But imagine for the time being a child who is, has parents that are ridiculously wealthy, like famous wealthy. Everybody knows who they are wealthy. And imagine that child's growing up experience. I'm sure people, once they discovered who they were, who their parents were, would treat them in all sorts of ways that were different than if they hadn't been from that line, that family. But I'm sure that there'd be other little children of the same age who would at times slip into ridicule or mockery or forms of jealousy against this wealthy child. Now imagine that little child going home, telling his mom and dad about his experience, 
And of course, they would sympathize, they would love him, they would say, you know, it's not right that anyone treat you that kind of way just because you come from a family with great means like this. But I would imagine, I'm just saying, I could imagine that one of the words of comfort might be, you know, I'm sorry that you're going through that, I'm sorry that that's your experience, but also, you are really wealthy. It's a great blessing that you have. You're set. Our family's doing well. We have prospered. And in a sense, as a Christian, we can receive that same reality. Oh, you read an article online that ridiculed your faith. Oh, somebody said something nasty to you about your Christianity on Facebook. Oh, someone posted a sign that was obviously addressed to you as a Christian, criticizing you for your beliefs and convictions. That might be true, but remember, you're wealthy in Christ Jesus. You have God. You, as, you are, as Peter says, blessed by God. And you've got to have this in your mind. You've got to have this in your heart. This must be your mentality if you're going to endure the age to come. Can you see yourself as blessed even if you suffer for Christ? You see, too many have felt the fires of hostility warming and have abandoned the gospel. They valued what they get from man more than what they get from God. But what you get out there, what you get from man is not worth it. Christ is our greatest treasure. So that's the first thing I want to show you today. But the second thing, beyond the perspective that suffering highlights God's blessing, Peter, number two, also wants us to know that exile suffering, it requires fearlessness. It requires fearlessness. I mean, this is just real talk from Peter. We're not going to make it unless there's a boldness, a courage that's in our hearts. Look at how Peter says it at the end of verse 14 with me. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. In order for us to make it as believers in the age to come, we will need a measure of courage, fearlessness before God. I've found over the years that the Bible is a great source of inspiration that helps me deal with fear. You know, because the Bible constantly exhorts us to a life of trust with God. There you are, just reading along in the Word. You come to Philippians chapter 4, which tells you not to be anxious for anything, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to let your requests be made known to God. It helps you process the anxiety that you're experiencing. You come to Matthew 10, verse 28, and you hear Jesus saying that we should not fear someone who can kill the body but not affect the soul. We should in instead have a reverence for God. The Bible will declare to you that God did not give you a spirit of fear but of power and love and a sound mind, 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. And the Bible will ask you questions that search your, your soul. It will ask you, if God is for you, who can be against you? Or it will ask you, if the Lord is your light and salvation, who should you be afraid of? And it will remind you that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the fear of man. And the Bible will tell you stories of courage, times when God's people launched out into obedience despite reasons to fear, and they trusted God. 
It'll tell you about how Noah built the boat and didn't fear anyone's laughter. How Joshua led Israel despite inevitable comparisons his whole life to his predecessor, Moses. How David ran into battle with Goliath even though human logic would never have encouraged him to do so. How Elijah prophesied to Ahab even though King Ahab was a murderous lunatic. Time and time again, the word will encourage you to live without fear. So you've got to be a person that reads the word, that is in the word. You've got to let it bolster you for the times that we're heading into. And one passage that gives encouragement comes from the book of Isaiah chapter 8. Peter seems to have been reading that passage because that's what he quotes in verse 14 when he says, have no fear of them nor be troubled. That came from Isaiah 8. In Isaiah 8, the Assyrian invading army was making everyone afraid because the Assyrian invading army was terrible. They were powerful, but they were also ruthless in their power. Some of the things that they would do to torture the people they defeated should not be repeated. It, it was terrible what they would do to human beings. And everyone was afraid of them, but God spoke to Isaiah and said, Isaiah, you should not be afraid. I'm with you, I'm with my people. I will defend and stand with you. Isaiah did not need to act in fear like everyone else. He could be bold. And so Peter quotes from Isaiah because he knows that exile suffering requires this kind of fearlessness. He said, have no fear of these accusers who threaten you. Don't be shaken up. Troubled is the word he used. Emotionally disturbed by the events of our days. But how can you develop this fearless mindset. I can't just tell you, don't be afraid. I can't just tell you, be courageous and have it happen. Walk out of here. We're all courageous. That'll last three and a half minutes. How can we actually put on courage? Well, notice what Peter says. In verse 15, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What this means is that we must go through a process where we set Jesus in our hearts as the supreme entity, the holy being, the Lord of our lives. We're to do this daily, constantly. We're to have such reverence towards Jesus that we are inwardly confident that no matter what goes on around us, Jesus is king. The Bible says that angels and authorities and powers are subject to Jesus. And even when it feels like it's not so, we know as believers it's true. Christ is our Lord. He's supreme. This is the secret to fearlessness, getting your focus upon him. You see, with an exalted view of Jesus, you can endure the age to come just fine. So keep pressing into Jesus. When you sin, run to Jesus for cleansing. Don't run away from him in shame. When you feel weak. Know that Jesus experienced human frailty and run to him for his strength. When you are tempted, run to Jesus for the way of escape that he provides. And when you're spiritually tired, run to Jesus for spiritual strength. When you're marginalized, go to Jesus for his acceptance and embrace. And this can strengthen you and drive out fear. 
And one of the reasons that I'm so confident about this, and I know that this works, is because I have the case study of the life of Moses. Moses was a man that at age 40 was fearful and ran away from his home uh, country and from his people. But at age 80, he had an encounter with the living God. He saw a bush that was burning yet not consumed, and he heard the voice of the Lord communicating to him that he was holy, that Moses should take off his sandals from his feet. God said his name, I am, to Moses. And this sanctified God in Moses' heart. It made God a big deal in Moses' mind, so much so that he could then go and confront the most powerful human who was overseeing the most powerful system of government and kingdom in the world at that time. Over and over again, Moses confronted Pharaoh because God had been elevated in his heart. And we must have the same. We must continue to sanctify Jesus in our hearts if we're going to make it in the age to come. Now, one last thing I want to point out comes from verse 15 and 16. We've looked today and seen that exile suffering highlights God's blessing on our lives, that it will require fearlessness. But this one last thing is that exile suffering, if we do it right, it can lead to opportunities for the gospel, opportunities to share the gospel with someone else. In other words, the way that you suffer for Jesus might be the key that unlocks a person's heart to the Lord. For this, let's look at the end of verse 15 and 16. He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, I've been telling you through this whole study of 1 Peter that one of the reactions to hostility for the faith the marginalization of Christianity that we should not have is to retreat, to run from society and not be a part of our culture. And Peter makes it clear that he will not promote withdrawal from society either. He says, when suffering comes, we should not retreat, but we should suffer so well with hope towards God, with gentleness and respect towards others, and with a good conscience toward ourselves We should suffer so well that someone is curious about the hope that is in us. And Peter says we should be ready to explain the hope that's in us that enabled us to respond in that way to suffering. There's a good example of this in the book of Daniel with Daniel's three friends who were thrown into a fiery furnace as a punishment for their refusal to bow down to a statue made by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, They didn't die, though, when they were in that fiery furnace, and they were instead set free by an angel of God, and they were walking around inside of the furnace, unharmed. And this shocked King Nebuchadnezzar, so he invited them out of the furnace, and he questioned them. You know, who are you guys? How did you just do what I saw you do? Why didn't that fire kill you? That's the natural order of things, but you just did something unnatural, supernatural, so to speak. You see, in a similar way, when we respond in the way Peter tells us to, 
to hostility and marginalization for the faith. It so defies the natural way of doing things that many people will wonder how we did it. And Peter tells us we better be prepared in that moment to make a defense when those questions come our way. Now, just thinking about that to wrap up our time today, I imagine that many of us, we would really welcome the opportunity if someone were to come to us and say, hey, you, you seem like you're suffering really well. Uh, you seem like you're enduring this hardship really well. And I have a question for you. I'd really like to know the reason for the hope that you have inside of you. Wouldn't you just love that if that's how the next week unfolded? Every day, some random stranger just came up to you and said, what is the reason for the hope that's inside of you? Or maybe some of you have read the book of Acts before, and you've read the story where, as I mentioned last week, Paul goes to Philippi, and he's in jail. In the middle of the night, there's an earthquake. The jail opens up. His chains are broken. He comes out of the prison, and the Philippian jailer is there, and he looks at Paul and Silas, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Wouldn't you just love to have that question? It's like putting the baseball on the tee. You just, oh yeah, I can handle that one. I'm ready with my full gospel presentation. If anybody comes up to me and says, what must I do to be saved? And some of us might be sitting here today and saying to ourselves like, yeah, you know, if that, if that ever happens, I'll do it. I'll tell somebody about Jesus if they tee it up for me in that very specific way. But here's the problem. People in our society and community are not walking around asking that question. And it seems that a lot of our approaches in the church for sharing the good news of Jesus, they assume a fairly high level of interest in Jesus and in the things of God. One author put it this way. They said you could kind of grade someone's interest in the things of the Lord, the things of God, the gospel on a scale of one to 10. In many of our programs that we create as a church, many of our spiritual laws or outreaches or plans for sharing Christ, they begin with the idea that people are at an eight or nine when it comes to their level of interest. This works great in children's ministry, where you ask a little kid, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Who wants to? And everybody raises their hand, and they are super interested in the things of God, at least until snack time. But they are an open door. They're at an eight or nine. These methods might work there, but most people in our society aren't quite there. So we should pray for opportunities to carry people along in their process, to take them, say, from a two to a three or a three to a four. I think this is a more practical and realistic approach, especially in a post-Christian culture, than just waiting for people to walk up to us and say, what must I do to be saved? You have to recognize there's a, there's a lot in Christianity. You know, just you start out with the idea, I believe in life after death, and that I will meet King Jesus forever and ever in his kingdom a new heavens and a new earth. That's just a lot right there for someone who's new to these things to process. So to help someone along their journey 
is wise for a Christian to do. But I don't think that Peter thinks that we should just sit back and wait for people either. I think he wants us to be gently and creatively opportunistic. For those who are looking, the Spirit will give them chances to share about the Lord, to share about how Jesus filled their emptiness, cured their loneliness, released them from guilt, and empowered them for change. That's a really big one, by the way, in our modern era. People don't know how to change. And so if the Lord has changed your life, that's a great testimony to help people see a way forward because God has changed you. So as you're doing this, I want to encourage you in a few different ways. One way I want to encourage you is think about the doctrines that you believe as a Christian and look for ways to testify about those doctrines. Let me give you a couple of examples. One thing we believe as Christians is that God is in control. Amen? This stems from, or could be called, the sovereignty of God. He's the creator of everything. He's in control. We believe this about God. So when people around you in life are panicked for things small or things big, you know, on the small end of the spectrum, they're upset and panicked because they lost their cell phone, or on the other end of the spectrum, they're panicked because the politician they least like did something that they least like. When this happens, you have an opportunity as a Christian to be a calming presence that displays God's sovereignty. When you lose your phone or when a politician you don't like does something you don't like, you can calmly trust in the sovereign hand of God upon your life. And you can look for an opportunity to share with that person why those things aren't working you up because you know that God is in control. Or here's another example. We believe as Christians that God is good. We know this from the gospel. We see it in the cross of Christ. And this helps us understand that whatever God says is best for our lives, even if we struggle to understand the why of it at times. It means that we turn to God for satisfaction and joy. But I guarantee you, your life is filled with people that are trying to find satisfaction and joy in a lot of different ways. They might be spending beyond their limits. Uh, they might be filling up their schedules beyond capacity. They're just one of those people that runs around like a chicken with their head cut off in life. Uh, they might be chasing relationship after relationship, but you have an opportunity to show them an alternative way of life, to display for them the joy that comes from a relationship with God who is good. And you can look for opportunities to share for the reason or wh why you're so content because you believe that God is good. On and on we could go, thinking about different doctrines that we could look for opportunities to share with others. You know, we believe that God is love. And as people are busy trying to fill their lives to prove themselves, you can be a calm person who doesn't feel that you need to prove yourself before God because through the gospel, you're accepted by him, by God, and you can communicate that level of acceptance that you feel in the Lord. On and on we could go. But in addition to thinking about the doctrines that you believe and how to share those with people in your life, I want to also encourage you, lastly, to ask questions of the people that are around you. 
You know, there's a story in the life of Joseph where he was in prison and saw two ex-servants of Pharaoh who were saddened because Pharaoh had thrown them into prison. And he saw their sadness one day, and instead of preaching to them a sermon about sadness, Joseph just asked them, why are you sad? Sometimes this seems so uh, hard for a believer to do, to not preach, but to just ask a person, how, what's going on? Why are you feeling this way? What's happening? And let them begin sharing with you. And let me give you some questions that you can ask. One category of questions that can help you find an entrance for the gospel are to ask family-based questions. People like talking about their place of origin, what their family was like. And as they share and as they talk about what their family is like, I'm sure there will be moments that you could talk about some of the things that Jesus has done for you in your family. Maybe Jesus redeemed a relationship in your family that was broken. Uh, maybe you did some stuff in your past that really harmed your family, but he's forgiven you and helped rebuild the trust that you previously had lost. But you can testify of his grace in the realm of family. Another area of questions that you could ask are career or education-based questions. You know, people like talking about what they're passionate for, what their job is, what they're doing in life. And maybe in the course of doing that, you can encourage them with a scripture that's encouraged you in your work. Maybe you can give them biblical counsel that would help them decipher what they should do in life. You don't have to dress it up with a bunch of Jesus language, but you can give them biblical counsel. You could share a proverb with them that is ministered to you in your place of work. Another category of questions is to ask questions that deal with things they are obviously, uh, that they obviously care or are passionate about. It could be as innocent as hobbies, but it could also be anything that angers, makes them enthusiastic or excited in life. With humility, ask them why those things excite or anger or make them enthusiastic. Ask them what they're looking for in certain experiences. Ask them why it matters so much to them. Ask them what they're interested in. And pray the whole time that God would give you the words to speak, input to give that helps them understand who you are and where you're coming from with the gospel. And then lastly, I would say, try to ask trial and hardship-based questions. These can be delicate, but if someone is willing to talk about a hurt in their lives with you, you are standing on holy ground. It's an open door for sure. So listen, pray as you're listening, and ask the Spirit to help you as you slowly speak into their lives because Jesus is the answer. So with wisdom and discernment, you need to know how to share with them. And be sure to ask all of these questions with, as Peter said, gentleness and respect. I want to encourage you not to worry too hard about sealing the deal in that moment. God is sovereign. Trust that he's working on their hearts. He can bring them to 10 whenever he wants to bring them to 10. And if your role is to take them a little closer, then great. Some plant, some water, but God gives the increase, Paul said. Trust the Spirit to finish 
the work that he has begun. By the way, all of these things that I just said, all of this advice that I just gave to you, I can also make you a guarantee. If this is not the practice of your life with other Christians already, you won't be able to do this with the non-believing world. So just begin practicing on each other. Apply the doctrines that we believe into Christian fellowship and interactions with each other. Ask each other about family and career and workplace and education and passions and pursuits and hurts that you're dealing with. As you get better and better with each other, you'll be better at better at just being the priesthood of believers that Peter said we are to the world that we live in. So today we've seen a particular perspective that's required for exile suffering. And there are some statements that we can make that encapsulate Peter's message. Number one, we can say, I am blessed. Can you guys say that? I am blessed. Even if I'm persecuted, even if I'm marginalized, even if people make fun of me in Jesus' name, I am blessed. I have Jesus. I have the gospel. Second, we can say, I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. Jesus is my king. He's gonna wrap all things up. He's sovereign over all of this. I don't have to be afraid. And then thirdly, we can say, I have a mission. I've got a job to do. I want to tell people about the hope that I have in Christ. So I will respond well to trials. I will respond well to suffering and look for a chance to explain why I have the hope that I do.